Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. The following is an intimate conversation about the realities of giving birth, and it may not be appropriate for sensitive ears. On today's episode... We have to know we're safe because remember that whole basic purpose of pain is to give us a warning that things are potentially not okay. And so that ability to differentiate when we're safe and when we're not, we really have to practice calming our bodies and our minds. This is like Olympic level calming and coping of your mind to deal with the potential pain of childbirth, right? If we can believe that the people around us are taking care of us in the way that we need and it's okay, then we're able to focus and calm our bodies. And that's going to totally change our pain experience. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to The Birth Podcast. I'm your host, Christy Williams. And if this is your first time joining us, then you should know that this podcast is where we dig in deep. We go to the real experience of pregnancy, birth, and postpartum. We don't sugarcoat anything here because this podcast is all about building a community of parents who feel prepared and empowered as they enter their parenthood journey. And, you know, speaking of feeling empowered, today's topic of discussion is pain. Pain is one of those things that it's hard to feel empowered about, right? In fact, pain is one of the most common fears that women have about childbirth, which is why I'm so excited to be welcoming a leading expert in pain management on the podcast for a two-episode series. Who is this expert? Her name is Dr. Jody Thomas. She's a licensed clinical psychologist and a specialist in pediatric medical illness and trauma. She's a well-known expert in pediatric pain, and she teaches internationally on the subject. She is the founder and executive director of the Meg Foundation and a mother of two children. And she knows a few things about pain and how to teach people to have an empowered pain experience. Today, in part one of this pain series, we discuss why Dr. Jody Thomas is on a mission to improve the pain experience of children and adults everywhere, and how years of working with chronically ill children and also her own experiences with childbirth and having a baby in the NICU have charged her passion to empower kids and parents to be in control of their pain experience. What is pain? How does it work? I mean, do people feel pain differently, really? Why? And how do newborns, babies, and children experience pain? How can parents create the best possible pain experience for their children during medical procedures? What do you need to know if the baby is in the NICU? How can you have a positive pain experience during childbirth? You're going to hear the answers to all these questions. Plus, in this episode, Dr. Thomas begins to share with us her own birth stories. And I am not kidding you. My jaw was on the floor when she was telling me her birth stories, you guys. After you hear these two episodes, I think that you will also understand why I now refer to her as the Jedi Master of Pain. She's incredible. Buckle up. Here's my conversation with Dr. Jody Thomas right now. 
Uh, first of all, thank you so much for doing this podcast. I'm so honored that you're you're here. And um, for everyone listening, I'm wondering if you could just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about the work that you do. Sure. I'm Dr. Jody Thomas, but of course, call me Jody. And I'm a clinical psychologist, but I actually specialize in uh, medical illness and trauma in kids, and particularly pain. So I do my clinical work, but um, actually a big part of what I do right now, the main part of what I do is run a nonprofit called the Meg Foundation, which is dedicated to empowering kids and families around pain and pain management. So become kind of a big life's mission to uh, make sure kids and families have what they need to keep their kids safe and comfortable. I mean, talk about a mission and a life's work that's actually literally changing people's lives. That's such a big part of our fears around illness and death and dying and, you know, just anything medical. And I think for women, the biggest fear they have with childbirth is pain. Yes. (laughs) And so to help people in a real way to sort of wrap their minds around and cope with pain is just like, I want to like applaud you. That's um, really, really valuable work on a very tangible level. So how did you get here? Like, at what point did you decide, okay, I'm going to focus on on pain management. And what called you to focus on helping so many people learn to manage their pain? Well, kind of the two part and the second part actually very much ties into what we're here to talk about today anyways. It works out well. Okay. So I started doing work with kids in hospitals and that not like way back when. When I was 17, I was in a really bad car accident Mm. and spent a lot of time in the hospital and which was a huge kind of shift and wake up call for me. And so a year later when I found myself in college and started volunteering at the children's hospital at Stanford Mm. and very circle of life ended up on faculty there many, many years later. But over the course of working with kids with cancer, diabetes, a major, major chronic and terminal illness, really the most, you know, difficult thing for them, them day to day is pain Mm -hmm. and pain management. And what I was really surprised to discover along that process was one, I think people who haven't really interacted a lot with the medical community have this belief that if I have pain and I go to the doctor, they can do something, give me something, and it will be better. And anyone who's had to interact with the medical community knows that that's not true. Mm-hmm. It's much mm-hmm. more complicated than that. And when I started working with these kids and seeing this, you know, as this, I'm a psychologist, I don't do meds, I'm meds are fine, by the way. Everyone asks me, they're like, oh, do you hate meds? I'm like, no, I just think they don't work long enough, well enough, or fast enough. And we got to figure out some other ways of dealing with this. Right. And in just the complex way in which pain exists on a biological, social, and psychological level. That's just how we're made as humans. Not crazy, not weird, just literally how we're designed. Right. So started getting into that work a lot, found some really wonderful mentors, did my dissertation research on sickle cell pain and teaching kids with sickle cell pain to use self-hypnosis for pain management, Hmm. finding not only that it was efficacious and worked really well for controlling their daily pain, but most importantly, it gave them power and control over their disease experience, which to me was probably the most powerful thing we can do. Mm -hmm. So this Mm -hmm. kind of started me off on that adventure, did all sorts of things and internships and whatever that are you know, whatever boring for most people Um, (laughs) ended up back at Stanford and I developed and ran their pediatric pain management rehab program for like an intensive outpatient program for kids with chronic pain, 
And then over the course of that, really always had in back in my mind, the fact that we are, the clinical practice of pain management is actually 30 years behind what the research says. Oh, which wow. Means that every day kids hurt when they don't need to. Right. Like the title of my first blog for the foundation was kids have to hurt, kids hurt when they don't need to, and that's dumb. And mm. it is. I mean, if we're going to take all back to academia and all this, we just, we hurt kids when it's not necessary. And so while I was still running the pain program at Stanford, I found myself in the NICU with my daughter. Now I'd worked in NICUs and hospitals for years. And all of a sudden I'm there as the mom of the patient, as the mm. mom of the baby. And so I'm standing there one day and the tech comes up to do a heel stick where they just, you know, poke the heel to get blood. Yeah. And again, I've marinated in this research and work for 20 plus years. And yeah. so I said to him, this poor tech, I'm sure is haunted to this very day. <laughs> uh, I said to him, okay, do you want me to take her out of the isolate and hold her skin to skin and, you know, put her to the breast? Or do you want me, do you want to get a glucose pacifier? So to pain management in babies, is literally, it's really simple most of the time. Hmm. So glucose pacifier, it's literally a pacifier dipped in sugar water. Okay. And bizarrely, and almost miraculously, it is incredibly effective for, hmm. for pain management for babies. Now on the flip side of that, <laughs> I know what damage we can do to these babies and particularly preemies and newborns who just, you know, their neurological systems are not done cooking yet, right? Mm -hmm. If we don't do pain management mm -hmm. so that we are literally damaging their not yet fully cooked systems. And we can see now we have years of research demonstrating changes to the gray matter in their brain, changes to their likelihood for depression, anxiety, chronic pain, um, their pain responses forever. Wow. And so you can picture me <laughs> and anyone who knows me will tell you I'm not the most shy retiring type under the best of circumstances. And then you can <laughs> stick me in the NICU postpartum sleep deprived and with my own baby there. And let's just say that doesn't really, <laughs> that doesn't make me any more, more shy and retiring. Right. Right. So suddenly I find myself with this tech and I say, okay, do you want me to take around the breast or get a glucose pacifier? And he looks at me and says, oh, well, we don't do that here. Oh my God. <laughs> and I was like, well, well, we do now because I'm not going to let you do this unless we do this. So I'm going to ask you again, like, do you want me to take her out or do you want to go get a glucose pacifier? And this poor man, mm -hmm. again, and I just want to review, like people who work in the NICU are good people. Like no one gets into this work and yeah. is not, I mean, good people. And he looks at me and says, well, that's not convenient. Mm. And so I said, okay, look, I'm going to reflect back what you just said to me. And what you just, first of all, it's not inconvenient for me to either take 20 seconds to take her out of the isolate or to go get a glucose pacifier. And if that's too hard, I'll do it myself and get that for you. Mm -hmm. But even if that were inconvenient, which it's not, you just told me that you're willing to hurt and per potentially permanently damage my baby for your convenience. Mm. Which point in time he's like freaked out. He's like, that's not what I mean. That's not what I mean. That's not what I meant. I'm like, I know that's not what you meant, sir. That's why we're still having this conversation, but that's what you just said to me. Mm. So just so we're clear, we're going to be doing one of those two things and you're never allowed to touch my baby again without me being here. Wow. And he <laughs> says to me, well, that's not the way I'm like, I assure you it is how it works. And I assure you by the end of this day, I'm going to have lots of conversations with various people about how this is going to work. 
And I understand that you clearly don't have the training or protocols to do what needs to happen right now. But unfortunately, I cannot let what you don't know hurt my baby. Right. And so it was that moment and I'm standing there looking around this NICU with other parents who clearly love their babies as much as I do, who are as worried about their babies as I am. But I have, I mean, this is my home turf. I've worked in hospitals my entire career. I literally (laughs) have been in pain management for, you know, not yet 20 years at that point, but now plus now. Mm -hmm. And so this really started us off with this whole idea that we need to empower kids and families and parents about this and really identify what those barriers are to getting good care and find ways to get around that. Um, Because the field itself has been attempting to address this problem. And I mean, the field of pain institutionally, Mm -hmm. and that's really hard. Anyone who's ever been part of an institution knows how hard it is to change a large organization. Yeah. And so our take is really about going straight to the people who are most invested, which are the parents and families themselves. And we live in an age of technology that we can reach them when and where we need them, right? Everyone has a smartphone, everyone's right there. And so what we aim to do is create resources and things that are there when you need them, right? When you're standing there in the ER and your kid's going to have to get stitches, what do I do, right? (laughs) When your baby's in the NICU and you've never thought about this before, what do you do? And then also that flip side of like really helping parents, like really from the get-go, which is why one of the many reasons I was excited to talk to you today, because we really are excited to get parents knowing from the very beginning that pain management is possible, that our kids don't have to hurt. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, one of our biggest challenges is that the thought of pain and needle pain and like what we call procedural pain is inevitable. So kids, parents, and providers all hold on to this belief that it's just inescapable and unavoidable and a necessary evil when it's really not. Mm. And it's actually not that hard and pretty simple. And so we love capturing parents really early so we can guide and support them as they go through their kid's childhood Mm -hmm. and really teach them how to be comfortable with the doctor and how not to fear the doctors. That's really our big problem is that, you know, we think that the kid freaking out over a flu shot or immunization or a blood test or whatnot is about a rough few minutes in the doctor's office. And unfortunately, that is about everything that happens next. Hmm. And that we know increasing amount of kids develop healthcare avoidance, develop needle phobia, and become those adults that we all know that don't do doctors, right? You can think of those people who don't go doctors. And that's really because of something that happened when they were like four, Yeah, that is utterly preventable. Yeah, And so we want an entire generation of everyone doing doctors. Okay. So we're all actually getting the healthcare that we need. Yeah. I love that point of view. And you know, in, in my limited experience and just from talking to other parents, I think a lot of the fear around, you know, getting shots and going to taking your kid to the doctor for procedures or whatnot, it's, it's, the parents are carrying a fear, putting that on their child. It's always harder for me when my son gets an immunization than it is for him, 100%. A 100%, yes. Right. And it's like, yeah. he's over it so quickly. And, uh, you know, I don't breastfeed anymore. But when I was, I would just breastfeed him while they were doing the shot. And Perfect. that was great. I happened to have a pediatrician that was very open to that and, you know, or I bring a new toy he'd never seen before and show him that right when the needle went in or whatever. And I'm so mm-hmm. curious to hear sort of what the what the techniques that maybe parents can 
can use while they're learning how to help their children cope and what sort of environment can they create during those, you know, quote unquote, scary, otherwise, you know, what we think as scary moments scary for the kids. Moments. Yeah. Yeah. So first of all, your, to your first point, the research totally admits that out. It's actually rates of trauma are higher among the parent than the child. Because, mm. and again, anyone who's ever been a parent knows that it's harder to see your kid hurt than it is for you know them to actually hurt. Mm-hmm. So that is, and we also know that parents start making medical decisions consciously and unconsciously based on that fear of the freak out, then what's best for their kid, mm. which is also why that pain management becomes so important. So also A plus to you, those are the perfect strategies for pain management. Um, So skin to skin contact is huge. Breastfeeding for kids who are still breastfeeding and little, that glucose pacifier sugar water is really effective. So it's about 30 seconds before and during, and then a few minutes after until they're calmed. Can you describe Um, how someone might make that or prepare that? Yes. Actually, so we have uh, really clear instructions on the Meg Foundation website, and there's a great video by Anatadio, who's one of the leading experts in the world on this. Great. Um, but it's really, I think it's just a one-to-one ratio, like double check me on that, but I'm pretty sure that's mm-hmm. correct. We'll put and a link. it's literally just sugar water placed on the tongue and either on a pacifier if they do that, or even just placed on the tongue. And I mean, there's a reason we all love chocolate. They they (laughs) release good chemicals into our body. Mm -hmm. Now we don't want that becoming like the thing you give your kid all the time. Mm -hmm. And some parents are like, Oh, we don't give kids sugar. I'm like, well, I have to break it to you, but like breast milk and formula, a lot of sugars, like they break down in the Mm -hmm. system. Mm -hmm. Yes. Don't give your kid a Coke. Yeah. But a little sugar water for needle poke is just fine and really safe. And it's actually the number one rack of the World Health Organization, the American Account of Pediatrics, and Mm. every peds organ in the world. So that skin to skin contact, that warmth. Now that persists even as they're older, by the way. So Mm. one of the things we want to do is be able to what we call comfort position. So even when our kids aren't babies anymore, or even toddlers anymore, them being close to us physically is really, really important. And the worst thing we can do is hold kids down. Like the number one not recommendation, which happens still far too frequently, is literally holding kids down Mm. and holding them particularly on their backs. And sometimes when I train people, I train medical providers, I actually make them get on the floor and lay on their back so they can remember what it feels like to feel that open and unprotected. And the primal instinct we have just to to cover our chest, to cover ourselves. Wow. Because it's so terrifying to be on our backs. I hate to interrupt, but you just brought back a memory that I think I I didn't forget it, but it's just something I don't think about on the regular. But when I was about maybe three years old, I fell down some stairs and I had to have stitches over my eyebrow and they put me on my back in like a straight jacket sort of uh, device. A papoose. Yes. Is that what it's called? Yes. If I could banish anything from the planet, it would be that they're still like sold and used. And we literally have decades of research of how traumatizing that is. Like you were three. Yeah. And I might be one of your first memories is that. Well, honestly, it was very, a very significant event in my mind because I remember the way that the nurse like the doctor, because they had to put a needle on my eyebrow, you know, so they Mm -hmm. did need me to stay still, but a nurse was holding my face and she said, just imagine you're in a, like she was describing like a nature scene or something. Like she was trying to get me to think about uh, like a guided meditation or something, but I was not having it. I was like (laughs) screaming. And I remember thinking, 
get off me. Well, I don't know. I just, I remember yeah, like exactly. just being panic, so right? ang- yeah, angry because I couldn't move and she was holding my face. And it was like, you're telling me to think about a field with horses or something. Like it was yeah. <laughs> very significant in my childhood traumas, I guess. But no, that's so interesting. A papoose. Okay. So people still yeah. use this. People wow. still use this and it, you know, I'll get phone calls when people will say like the dentist wants to put my two-year-old in a papoose. I'm like, no way, wow. no way. Um, unless you want them to be thinking about it, you know, 20, 30, 40 years later. No, no, we're solid. No on that. Wow. Now back, like when you were a kid that happened a lot and you know, that whole traumatic memory thing, it's actually one of the things I also ask parents and providers do when I train, like what's your earliest memory? And nine times out of 10, the earliest memory is a traumatic medical memory like Mm. that. So Mm. I was four. I remember getting held down for a blood test and still can see that stupid Muppets poster on the wall they kept on telling (laughs) you to look at, right? Yeah, yeah. And you're like, no. But what's interesting about what you're saying is one of what she was trying to do was helpful, but there there was no way you were doing it because you were already – in this in very panic. primal fight right. or flight, right. right? You were already panicked. And at Mach 10, you're like, forget, like there's nothing you're doing that's going to help me, mm-hmm. which speaks to that thing we were talking about, that need for closeness mm. and that need for comfort positioning. Right. And also the need for parents. And like you said, like we do kind of transfer our anxiety to our kids, which is natural and normal, by the way, like that parents like, oh, you know, I, we don't want to be judged. I'm like, no, you're not judged. Like that makes sense. Like it also means you're connected to your kids. So yeah. congratulations. Good job. Yeah. <laughs> but what, okay, we want to do that, but it also becomes a powerful tool because when we can go in calm and centered, kind of finding our own happy place. So think about how different your experience would have been if your mom was holding you at that point, like you were straddling her, she's restraining your arms to keep you safe by hugging you, mm-hmm. right? Which mm-hmm. is a normal thing for mom to do. And she is softly whispering in your ear to imagine the field or imagine Disneyland or mm. whatever, or showing you that video to distract you, like your son, your approach with your son and the brand new toy, which is right. good for little kids, right? And then older kids, this is the time to take the iPad or the screen that you don't let them use that much and be like, oh, here it is. You know, any parent knows what it's like to go into the room and have to ask four times for their kid's attention because they're so absorbed in a game or a toy or a video or whatever. And that ability to hyper-focus actually totally alters our pain experience. Mm. Now for you and your experience, you were hyper-focused on get me the hell out of here, right? right? Which is really normal and should when we are all of a sudden held down. This is why we know how traumatizing it is to be held down mm. because every primal part of you was trying to escape especially when we're little and we can't understand. Right. And so instead to be like, I'm being held by my parents and being comforted and I'm being told how and why this is happening. And then I'm being provided something else to focus on that I get to choose Hmm. that I'm actually interested in. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And that my parent who's sitting there, who I know does, isn't, you know, doesn't hurt me. You're like, you're not sure about this room full of strangers right. that you had to in it. And then now you have lots of evidence that they are hurting you, right? Yeah. Like actually lots of evidence <laughs> to the contrary. Thank you very much. Right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this is not cooler, guys. My um, nephew told uh, my, sorry, this is just reminding me yeah. of so many good yeah. things, but my nephew recently told my sister that the dentist's job was to torture children. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. So I want you to know, in contrast, 
my kids are now seven and eight and they love going to the dentist because for them, it means they get to put on headphones and watch Netflix, which they don't get to do all the time in my world. And they get a prize at the end in a balloon and everything else about it is great. Like they're like, yeah, that's awesome. So, but again, this is that difference between can we like create and provide and form this experience for our kids. Mm-hmm. So they have a positive attitude towards the dentist. Cause again, at six, we can still sort of get them in the car and go try 12. Right. Right. Okay? Yeah. So, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that is a little bit of a different discussion. So, yeah. Um, oh my gosh. So yeah. So in terms of that technique, so what we do is skin to skin contact, that whole glucose pacifier concept still is good. This is where the lollipop and whatever mm-hmm. are positive. Distraction, number one, that ability to hyperfocus on something else that we all see in our kids all the time. And then topical numbing cream. So once they're past six months old, we can use topical creams like lidocaine 5%, EMLA, LMX. So kind of the stronger ones are available by prescription, but you can easily get 5% lidocaine over the counter mm-hmm. online. And then putting them on any spot where the child could get a poke. There's no danger in putting in multiple places. So if you're like, oh, I'm not sure which thigh they're going to do or which arm, slap it on both. Okay. And um, you can do that before you leave the house or in the waiting room because it can take eh, 20 to 30 minutes to reach full efficacy, depending on what product you're using. Okay. But what's more helpful is that you're telling the child that there's numbing cream mm. on there, right? Mm-hmm. Like that we have the idea that we're putting this thing on our skin And that makes the poke not bother us. Right. Because the thing we have to remember is the worst part is anticipatory anxiety, mm, right? Like mm. for your nephew, it's not about what the dentist is going to do. It's about thinking about going to the dentist. That's the problem. Yeah, that's true of most things in life, huh? They're always worse in your mind. (laughs) Yes. So that's why we really talk about creating a plan. Um, We have several really good resources on the WEG Foundation website. And we did an intervention that I created for Stanford Children's Health which a video explaining kind of how pain works and all the various ways that we can interrupt it. So what all the techniques are and sort of how they work. So like there's a thing that for even for little kids, we can use, um, it's really about just anything that vibrates, but this product happens to be called the Buzzy Hmm. Bee. And you put it on the skin sort of in between close to where the needle point would go in, but in between that needle point in the brain. And it just creates a traffic jam of neurological systems Hmm. uh, with the vibration. And literally there's just no room for the pain signal to get through because pain actually happens in our brain. So if that signal doesn't reach our brain, we're fine. Yeah. That's one of the things I was going to ask you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wanted you to describe for us what is pain yeah. sort of on a, on a basic level. <laughs> yeah. So the basic level, like what we explain to kids and parents um, is that pain really happens in our brain. It doesn't mm-hmm. happen at the point where there's injury. And so the level of attention we get it totally changes it. The greatest example we have kids is there's no kid in the world who doesn't know having that day where at the end of the day of playing, doing whatever, there's a bruise on their body and they have no idea where it came from. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'll say to kids, I'm like, look, that's because your brain was so busy paying attention to something that was fun and good mm-hmm. that it didn't even notice that something hit you hard enough to give you a bruise. Yeah, that happens to me all the and, time. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Any of us can do that, right? And I said, at the same time, your brain is really good at knowing the difference between um, when it really does need to pay attention. Like if you fell and broke your ankle, mm. your brain would not let you ignore that. Like yeah. it would, it would pay attention because there's something you need to do to make it better. 
But when there's not something we need to do to make it better, when we're safe and okay, then we don't need that signal anymore. Because pain is designed as a system to keep us safe from things that are potentially dangerous. Now, the emphasis on potentially. Right. Now, we want to pay attention to some things, but then we don't need to. And that's the framework we have to give is that we don't actually need to pay attention to the needle or the pain because it's safe. The doctor is doing something to help us either get healthy or stay healthy. And so that way we're, we're freed up to not pay attention to that signal. Mm. Now, the aspects of that pain experience are both sort of the physical, like what actual damage is being done to tissue, which in a poke is really not that much. It bothers us a lot more than it hurts us. Right. The psychological component of a needle going into our skin is a lot greater <laughs> than any physical pain it causes. Right. Yeah. So there's the physical part, there's the psychological part, and then there's what we call our social part, the biopsychosocial model of pain. And that social part is what we're talking about, how a parent is responding to us, how the provider, the medical providers are responding to us Mm -hmm. and sort of what cues we get from our environment about how we handle that. Hmm. So when we have that attitude of, yes, I know we're worried about the needle poke, but the good news is, is we can make a plan and we have a bunch of ways to make it better or easier. And that we have these ways that you can choose. Power is control. Yeah. Yeah. Power is control. And when we're asking the kid, like unlike the non-powerful Christy who was held down and papoosed and told, it would be like, hey, do you want to sit on mom's lap or do you want to sit next to her? Mm. Do you want your needle poke in this arm or this arm? Right. Do we want to afterward, what kind of, you are being brave and tough. So what kind of reward do you want after for doing a hard thing that you're making easier? Great. What video do you want to watch? Why this happens so you don't need to pay attention to it. Right. So all of those things, the more choice we can give kids, the better, especially younger kids. I mean, older kids very much too. But remember, younger kids do not have a lot of choice in their world. (laughs) They don't get to know when dinner time is. They don't get a choice on when their bath is. They don't get (laughs) their world is dominated by adults telling them what to do. And so when you create moments of choice, you create moments of power and control. Mm. And that's really powerful. Uh, It is. I love that. And you know, what I've been thinking about is you're giving parents all these great tools and techniques, but a lot of the challenges of being in a situation with a medical professional is learning how to advocate for yourself and communicate with your doctor or provider, right? So are there any sort of like tips that you would say that parents can utilize to better communicate with their doctors in order to help their child have a better pain experience? You've really hit the nail on the head and it's incredibly important. And one of the biggest challenges we're trying to tackle at the foundation, the biggest piece of advice I can give is to know that you need and will need to use your voice and that's okay. Hmm. So how we're trained up is that anyone in the white coat, we're supposed to defer to that. There's just very much a power differential and we're supposed to fall in line to it. Hmm. And what I always encourage is this is a collaboration. Okay. This is very much a collaboration. And there are times when you're going to have to take more power and control than initially feels comfortable. But if you're prepared with what you want to say and what you want to do, then that makes it a lot easier. So one of the things that we do, and we're actually about to launch, hopefully in the next month or so, 
a tech platform that actually guides parents through this. Oh, great. And has what we call speak up scripts. So like exactly what we can say when someone says, oh, we don't do topical anesthetics here or, oh, well, we actually want you to leave the room and we'll do the procedure with your kid. No, 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 no. We are not going to do that. So to realize that we have a voice and then that mom instinct that we all have, right? When we started doing what we call needs finding and design thinking interviews with parents, the universal thing we heard was, I knew it wasn't right, but I didn't know what to do. Mm. And because I didn't know what to do, I said nothing. And then I knew something was wrong, but I had no idea how to fix it. So like the huge mom, parent guilt, and all of that was just heartbreaking, honestly, to read over and over in our interviews. Mm -hmm. And what we want to know is that you can have a voice. So one of the things we can do, and we have this research on our website, and what will actually in the tech platform, if you put in your doctor's email address, we will send them an email with the best practice clinical guidelines and the research. Hmm. I mean, because what everything we're talking about is recommended by every major pediatric organization in the world. It's just not done. Hmm. Okay. So when we hand them that research, we stop a conversation from being like, oh, this is kind of a pain in the butt parent who's being high maintenance and coddling her kid to um, hi, why aren't you following the recommendations of the American Academy of Pediatrics? That's right. weird, right? <laughs> like, why that. aren't we doing that? Right. So we're changing that power dynamic, hopefully in a respectful way. Right. This isn't I mean, I've worked with providers. I love providers and they don't want to hurt kids either. Mm -hmm. And what we do in doing this is we're helping change that system Mm. so they get the support they need. Right. Mm. And so we also have to come in these situations prepped. Right. So if you call the doctor's office ahead and say, hey, would you prescribe Emla cream for their immunizations or we're going to have to get a blood test, which you prescribe some Emla. And they're like, yeah, we don't do that. So one, this is a, a chance for education. You're like, great. I'd like to send you some information. Mm-hmm. But two, we can also get on Amazon and order um, and order lidocaine cream and get it delivered to our house. Okay. Right, right. So <laughs> there are some choices. Okay, yeah, huh. And then we kind of have to go in and say, Hey, guess what? Look, they already have, this is where the shots are going to go. You can call ahead and be like, hi, where are the shots going to be? Is it going to be in the thigh or is it going to be in the arm? Right. Okay, great. They already have numbing cream. They're going to sit on my lap in this way and they want the poke right here. Right. Great. So there's a, that confidence and to be like, Nope, this is what we're going to do today. I have to tell you that when we can handle that respectfully, but, but powerfully mm-hmm. provider happy, they don't want to hurt your kid, right? This is not a good part of their day, right? Like right. one of the most stressful parts that I know from providers is causing kids pain and distress. They don't want to do that. And so we're like, we know this will make it easier, better, and faster. Most of the time they're like, okay, great. I might not know about that technique, but as long as it's safe and okay, okay. Yeah. Or sometimes they're like, well, I'm not sure about this. And you're like, well, we've done it every time this way and it works really well for him. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, you know, your kid best. Hey, I actually have a personal story about taking Jody's advice here. After we finished recording this interview a little while ago, I realized that my son had an appointment the following week to get some immunizations And so my husband and I called our son's pediatrician and we asked him to prescribe some numbing cream. Our doctor had never heard of anyone asking for a prescription of numbing cream and he seemed pretty amused by this request, but 
He was also very interested in the idea. And we explained to him that our goal was to give our son the best possible pain experience so that he would begin his life with a positive association with doctors and going to the doctor. And after hearing that, the pediatrician said he loved that idea and he would have absolutely no problem prescribing the cream. That's it. It was that easy. Once we got to the doctor's office, the nurse applied the cream to the areas where the needles would go in, and she did that at the beginning of the appointment, so it would, you know, take a little while to work. And then during the actual needle poke, I took Jody's advice also by holding my son really close skin to skin contact. I let him watch his favorite YouTube video, which is a NASA video on YouTube of a space shuttle launching. (laughs) And then overall, you know, it was very good. There were some tears. But afterwards, he got a new toy and he left the office thrilled. And I felt really confident that I had done my best to prepare both of us for a positive needle poke experience because I get really nervous before my kid has to have shots. And, you know, the good thing is, who knows, maybe that doctor's office will start giving more kids numbing cream now that they've done it for us. But either way, I was really glad to have helped educate our doctor that this is a great option to try. And it was a really smooth experience. So I highly recommend. I love this idea for, what did you call it? The speak up scripts? Speak up scripts. I love that. That's so empowering because that's Mm -hmm. really what it comes down to is like when you're in the situation, sometimes you just feel a little bit, oh, I don't know what to say. I don't, you know, you're just putting the tools in their hands to know that they're informed and that they are educated and that they can communicate effectively, which also makes me think like, wow, we need something like that for women who are about to go through childbirth, you know, because (laughs) that's, I've talked to a lot of moms who have recently had kids and that's one of the number one themes is, Oh, mm-hmm. I I wish I would have spoken up for myself more. I wish I would have ad- known how to advocate for myself more. I wish I would have told that nurse off or I wish I would have asked for this yes. and insisted upon it. And it, when you're in the moment, especially in a moment that's a little bit scary or, you know, you're dealing with a pain that you've never felt before, you know, then mm-hmm. that's invaluable to have that preparation yes. and and the know-how and to like have that support beforehand. So that's really, really awesome. I look forward to seeing that. It's great. Well, I'm glad. And so, yeah, we have lots of resources on the website for making game plans, going over stuff with kids, videos that show kids these techniques and why they work Mm -hmm. and to guide parents through making a game plan for themselves. And being able to practice, I mean, that's what we do when we do that. And I think what women can do for each other with childbirth is doing that and being like, okay, so if I'm the nurse and I say no, what are you going to say to me? Right. The moment that we practice yeah. those situations, because again, especially childbirth, right? We don't know what it's like until we're there. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> no matter how much we prep, we're like, oh my gosh, yeah. it's a mind-blowing experience. And so for them to be like, hey, so it's possible that they're going to tell you that this pain wasn't right or that you're not feeling like, so I'm going to be the nurse. What would you say to me? And the moment we've practiced and thought about it, it increases such the likelihood that we're going to be able to execute that in the moment Mm. because we're stressed. We're freaked out. We're, you know, uncertain. And when we can take away any of that uncertainty, we really improve our ability to actually handle the situation the way we want it to. Yes. And, you know, I think that's something that I'm curious to get your opinion on about childbirth and the pain of childbirth specifically, because when you're going through something like getting a shot or like a brief Mm -hmm. pain, that's not really, you know, 
that mm-hmm. intense than sort of the <laughs> compared to genre, the, no big deal. Yeah. <laughs> no, but, but like the and 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 maybe I'm mm-hmm. I'm curious, is it true that everyone experiences pain differently? And is that more of a mental thing or is that more of a physiological thing? It's actually both. Oh, okay. So we do know, kind of like I was talking about, that like early pain experiences can influence our neurological systems and how they process pain and pain response. Right. And just, you know, I don't know, you think about the the people with the more anxious temperaments or the more whatever temperament that was also reflected in our pain experience. Mm. So some people for whom they seem to be highly reactive to pain, others who do not. And so there's a physiological level of that where we're looking at inhibitors and non-inhibitors and all of that. Mm-hmm. But there's also a psychological component to it in a huge way, both sort of long-term. We know people with trauma have much higher degrees of chronic pain mm-hmm. than people without trauma. Mm-hmm. We also know, I mean, like when I'm training doctors and really am reinforcing the biopsychosocial model of pain as opposed to just the biomedical, mm-hmm. that like, again, the same cut would elicit the same response from everyone, which is wholly untrue. Right. I'm like, okay, have you ever noticed that when you stub your toe, when you're in a bad mood, it hurts worse than when you stub your toe in a good mood? <laughs> yeah, that's a great example. <laughs> like, yes, I'm like, that is literally because the way our brain processes pain is dependent on our mood state. Wow. So I'm like, now take that to something like childbirth yeah. or chronic pain or migraines. And that's just all the more true. Right. <laughs> so the mental state of it and the physiological state are both incredibly important. Wow. Yeah. Because it's interesting too, because I also feel like, well, from my own experience in childbirth, Mm -hmm. my plan to manage pain was just get the epidural and that's it. Cause I only heard Mm -hmm. it was great, Uh you know, great. Yeah. And my epidural didn't work and I didn't have the tools to cope with the pain otherwise. And I had back labor. And I think that my expectation of what, childbirth was going to feel like versus the reality, I felt like a <laughs> completely out of control, like, you know, <laughs> I, I, yeah. I'm always afraid of scaring people in this podcast, but that's sort of what it's about. Like, yeah. if you can't hang with the yeah. real deal, like you're not going to listen to this yeah. show. Uh, but it was like, you know, the the actual shooting sharp knives going in and out of my body type pain that I was experiencing, I was not at all prepared for or knew how to cope with. And sort of this idea Mm -hmm. that I could have prepared myself mentally, like done a Jedi mind trick or something like, do you have to be a Jedi Mm -hmm. warrior in order to get through pain at that level? Uh, (laughs) You know, like how, how does one prepare themselves mentally for uh, pain, even though I know childbirth is a temporary pain, right? So a lot of people yeah. don't really take it that seriously. And I feel, I don't know, I, the yeah. impression no, that I, I totally know what you're yeah, saying, because Im- I'm like, but anyone who's been in it is like, oh no, <laughs> right, this right. is like legit, right. right? And I'm just speaking from my own experience. <laughs> my nurses were excellent, but I've heard a lot of moms that didn't feel really that supported or heard when they were trying to get yeah. their pain coped with and uh, managed, yeah. you feel like you're just flailing for a bit during childbirth and you're like, ah, oh, what do I do? Yeah. So how, what sort of tools that you work with, you know, with kids can women use to help themselves as they're preparing to, for like the mental state surrounding giving birth and, you know, not really knowing what sort of pain, because everyone does have a different childbirth experience. So you don't know how painful it's going to yes. be or not. What would you say? No. And so I think what I, I, 
I would say is we have to remember that in order for us to manage pain well, we have to believe we're safe. Mm. And we have to know we're safe because remember that whole basic purpose of pain is to give us a warning that things are potentially not okay. Right. And so that ability to differentiate when we're safe and when we're not, which is why like, you know, the, which is unfortunately really common that response of people under responding to our experience really focus us to, we have to elevate, right? right? Like, because something is wrong. So it has to be more and bigger. And instead of being able to turn around and, um, to calm ourselves and say, okay, we're safe and okay. So to take this way back, I think one thing is we really have to practice calming our bodies mm-hmm. and our minds mm-hmm. and realizing that this is like Olympic level calming and coping of your mind to deal with like the potential pain of childbirth, right? right? So this is when we are practicing like self-hypnosis or self-meditation, breathing techniques, all of those things. So we get pretty darn good at sort of calming our body on demand, Mm. right? Learning how to do that and seeing the results of that, which are pretty profound actually, right? I think having a partner who's helping us, whether that's a doula or a partner or a friend or whoever that is, who can be part of that experience, who's essentially running interference for Mm. us in a lot of ways, because again, we have to believe we're safe. So we have to believe there's someone there. If we don't, we're not totally trusting our team. We don't necessarily know. We don't get to control who our team is, right? right? right. Then we need to believe that we're protected. That forces our attention because we have to protect ourselves. Yeah. But if we can believe that the people around us are taking care of us in the way that we need and it's okay, then we're able to focus and calm our bodies. And that's going to totally change our pain experience. Mm. So I can tell you a little bit about my two birth experience. It actually illustrates this point really well. Yes, let's get into that. I would love to hear your birth experience. Okay, let's start with the first one. And we can go back and forth if you want. Sure, because there's a there's the point of comparison that talks a lot, that kind of speaks to this pain thing a lot. Oh, okay, great. And that sense of safety. So yeah. So I am curious just about, because you know, since we are talking about mental state, before you became yeah. a mother, is that something you mm-hmm. always wanted to have children or how, what was your journey to motherhood? Yeah. I think I was that person who assumed I would have hmm. kids. Well, actually, you know, let me take that back a little bit. If I could have kids, I would have kids. Right. So I have a couple of chronic illness diagnoses. So I have what's called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is a connective tissue genetic disorder, which basically means all the connective tissue in my body, which is PS, like all of our tissue in our body, um, just isn't made very well. Oh. So I am, I have a, it's called a hypermobile subtype. So I'm incredibly flexible, which was a fun little party trick when I was young and not so much later on. So like my joints can spontaneously sublux and go out of whack. Um, But blood vessels and things like that are also um, weak and don't operate correctly. So this does a whole variety of issues. I've said cataract surgery because it turns out your eyes start going. (laughs) Oh my goodness. And as a result of this, I also have what's called um, POTS, or um, which is a form of dysautonomia. So my autonomic nervous system doesn't work that awesome. Okay. So basically, it means like whenever I have an infection in my body, it goes crazy. Um, I can't tolerate heat. My heart rate, my blood pressure get wonky. Um, so I've never had the flu in my life and not ended up in the hospital. Oh, wow. So... This basically means I was a young female who had tremors and passed out Mm. and had these kind of weird amorphous symptoms 
for a long period of time, like seven years, I was basically told you're either crazy or pregnant or anxious. <gasps> um, so, or have an eating disorder. Um, these are basically your options. <laughs> and so wow. it wasn't until I was 24 that we actually got a conclusive diagnosis Wow! and could actually tell it was wrong. That must've been hard. You must've also gotten a really thick skin from that, huh? Yeah. Well, and you also get to appreciate the need to advocate for yourself. Like right. I will still walk into an ER today if I get really symptomatic and have to like prove myself. Mm. And, um, I talk about this with doctors all the time. We're like, why are they so defensive about this? I'm like, I don't know, because I have to go into an ER as a faculty at a med school and defend my position about my diagnosis Mm. as a fully grown adult. Mm. So yeah. Wow. Um, It's a thing. Yeah. So we weren't sure if I could handle pregnancy. Right. At all. So it was not sort of the given. I knew I wanted kids. Um, we were not certain if I could do that. Right. And so. That said, <laughs> I definitely did not have easy pregnancies. Okay, so tell me, <laughs> tell me about the first one. How did it go? So the first pregnancy, we found out we we're pregnant. Turns out getting easy, getting pregnant was easy. That was shocking and exciting. Yeah. <laughs> Great. I was also older, so I was 35 when I was pregnant. Okay. So officially a geriatric yeah. pregnancy, which is always That's such ridiculous. a fun term, isn't it? I know. I'm like pretty sure I'm not breaking any world's records here. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> So what we figured out, because again, part of the issue of my illness is that is dysregulation of my blood pressure. And so previously that had typically meant very low blood pressure and difficulty creeping up my blood volume. Mm. And in pregnancy, fun, um, that turned into high blood pressure. Oh, wow. And uh, there was a lot of high blood pressure and I you know, was often tachycardic. My heart was going too fast. Things were difficult. So I was put on bed rest for... 10 weeks. Oh, wow. Um, and at then what point? I developed. Um, so I guess let's see, he was born at 37. So, so at 27 weeks, okay. I was put on bed oh, rest. Wow. How was that experience for you? Was that really, really hard? It was, oh God, I am not good at sitting still. Yeah. It is not a talent of mine. Um, <laughs> I'm not good at being socially cut off. So, <laughs> My poor husband had to tell me every detail where I'm like, so tell him about your meetings today. <laughs> He's like, you don't care about my meetings. I'm like I do now. Tell me things. I want to know. Um, so uh, <laughs> at that time, honestly, I thought it was bad, but it compared to number two, never mind. It wasn't. Oh God. Okay. So, um, so I was on t- about us for 10 weeks. And then at the end of 10 weeks, we did a, another 24 hour urine analysis mm. at 37 weeks, got preeclampsia. Oh, you did. Oh boy. Yes. What is preeclampsia, you might be saying to yourself? Well, let me just tell you about it. Preeclampsia is a serious blood pressure condition that can happen after the 20th week of pregnancy or after giving birth. It's when a woman has high blood pressure and signs that some of her organs, like her kidneys or liver, may not be working normally. High blood pressure is when the force of the blood against the walls of the blood vessels is too high and it can stress your heart and cause problems during your pregnancy. Most pregnant women with preeclampsia have healthy babies, but if it's not treated, it can cause serious problems like premature birth or even death. What are the symptoms of preeclampsia? High blood pressure, water retention, and protein in your urine. In severe preeclampsia, you can get headaches, blurred vision, inability to tolerate bright light, 
fatigue, nausea and vomiting, urinating, just small amounts, pain in the upper right abdomen, shortness of breath, tendency to bruise easily. It can prevent the placenta from getting enough blood. And if the placenta doesn't get enough blood, then your baby has less oxygen and food, and this can result in low birth weight. So that's why doctors get really concerned when you're preeclamptic. So we had the kind of fun experience of, it was actually really interesting. My mom had come in to help. At that point, I was going into the doctor two times a week to get checked. Mm. So I had been driving home on a Friday from my appointment, and my doctor called, who is just amazing and incredible human, my high-risk doc. And she said, you know what, Jody, I just don't have a good feeling. Will you come back and get a 24-hour urine test? Mm. I just have a feeling. Mm. And I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. I'm sorry. I know you're mostly home, but I just don't want to do that. I said, okay, great. So I did that. I did that on Saturday, turned it in on Sunday. Monday morning, my husband is literally walking out the door to work and the phone rings and it's my talk. And uh, I said, hey, how are you? She's like, I'm good, but I'm about to have a really busy day. And so are you because I need you to come to the hospital and have a baby because oh. <laughs> you have preeclampsia. <laughs> oh, wow. And I'm literally waving at my husband. I'm like, hey, never mind. Oh not going to work. Oh, my gosh. We're going to go grab a bag and go to the hospital. Now, for me, so the other interesting part about my illness and with EDS and with the dysautonomia combo is that I can't do normal anesthesia and that my body responds and reacts differently. Hold on a second. I just want to make sure that you heard that. Did she just say she can't have anesthesia? Let's listen to that again real quick. So the other interesting part about my illness and with EDS Mm. and with the dysautonomia combo is that I can't do normal anesthesia. Okay. And that my body responds and reacts differently. Okay. How does your body respond and react to it? So it can either one under respond. So we need a lot more. It cannot be effective or particularly relevant in this case is that it can really mess with my vitals and my body stability. So this means that when you're carrying a baby, we can't do things. So we had, again, thanks to my amazing doctor, put together sort of this powerhouse team. We joke this is like the most expensive birth ever Mm. Um, (laughs) because in it, so I'd met with the anesthesiologist before we met with everyone before because we really had no idea how this was going to go literally. Yeah. So we had the head of anesthesia, his first in command, with my normal OB, my high risk OB, the NICU team, a pediatrician. We had like 17 people in the delivery room um, in a main OR because we also didn't know how it would do. Okay. So they weren't even going to attempt a vaginal birth. It was just going to be straight cesarean for you? Yeah, there, there was no way like there was no they knew that a one that I was likely to end up in the situation I was where my body was starting to shut down right. before my body was going to give birth naturally. Got it. And can you not get uh, drugs like Pitocin with your condition? Yeah. So no. Okay. And well, also the process of pushing. Got it. Mm. And, you know, you think about that, like right. the stress that puts on your body and your blood pressure. They knew my body couldn't handle that. Oh, my um, gosh. That I would breakdown. Okay. So how are you preparing for this mental? Like you, you knew this when you got pregnant that, that this was a possibility and yeah. And how did you cope with that and prepare for that before? I mean, as we're leading up to it, you know? Yeah. So let me just be very clear real quick. 
in case you're not totally getting it yet. What she's saying is that she's going to have to have a cesarean without anesthesia or without knowing if anesthesia is going to work for her. And she knew this going into her pregnancy. Just want to be clear in case it's unclear because, oh my God. So in, I knew, I mean, I knew it wasn't going to be normal, but honestly, since I was 24, nothing has been normal Mm. with my health Mm. and my career and my work. Certainly. I mean, I've watched thousands of children go through these horrible diseases and procedures. Mm. I'm like, well, they can do it. Then so can I. Um, but it was also about like putting together a team mm. that helped me feel safe, right. right? This is where I did meet with anesthesia and did meet with everyone mm. and could sit here and say, okay, we don't know what's going to happen, but can you walk me through the possibilities mm. so we can know the, I, I need to know that you, you know what to do with everything, right. Right? right? So as a matter of fact, I was supposed to deliver at a different hospital, oh. but at seven months, that hospital said, no way you're too high risk. We can't have you deliver here. Oh, wow. And it was interesting because people asked me like, well, were you upset? Were you mad? I said, no, I was pretty happy. Cause like, if you can't handle me, then I really want to know now. Like, I don't want to know when I'm in the delivery room that you don't know what to That's do. That's a great to point keep of me view. And my baby safe. Yeah. Right. Yeah, like, yeah. No. <laughs> Solidly. I'll take the other one. <laughs> yeah. So like, and we had, like, we had arterial lines. Those are the sort of the lines that go into your arteries rather than your veins. Mm. So you can get continuous monitoring of blood pressure. Mm -hmm. So we had arterial lines. We were, I was monitored to the millionth degree. And then we just had to sit there. So thank goodness, like probably my hero, one of my heroes in this entire thing was the head of anesthesia Mm. because not only was he hilarious and funny and just did this brilliant job of kind of keeping me at ease Mm. Um, but in my prep that I hadn't done, it hadn't occurred to me that they wouldn't let my husband in the room. Oh no. Because we're in a main OR. Like there's no protocol for having partners in a main OR. They don't come in. Hey, you want to sit in on the appendectomy or open heart surgery? Like there's no protocol. For oh this. my gosh. How did he feel and about so, that? Was he crushed? Well, <laughs> well, we, we ended up getting, this is where the head of anesthesia being my hero comes oh, in. Okay. Um, because we're sitting there that morning and they're like, yeah, well, he can't be in there. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. If I'm probably going to have a C-section without anesthesia by myself, like he is absolutely going to be in the room. Like there's no way I can do this. And to the credit, like the charge nurse was, she, frankly, she was right. She was like, okay, so let me get this straight. Like we have this woman with all these unknowns and conditions. We have this baby who's coming early. Mm-hmm. We have 17 people in this room who have no idea what's going to happen over the next few hours. Mm. And you want the husband in the room. (laughs) And the head of anesthesia was like, yes, I do. And I was like, oh, my God, I love you so much. So because he was who he was, and he couldn't know that, like, my husband is the most mellow person on the Mm. planet. Like, the house could be on fire, and he'd be like, so maybe we should leave. Like, he is the most mellow human. Wow. And so, I mean, she had no idea if he was going to come in, freak out, pass out, whatever. It's just not a time you want to have to focus on anyone else. Right, right. He was finally allowed in because literally what we would do is we would put in or inject like literally like a milligram, half a milligram of anesthetic and see what happened. Okay. We'd all have to sit there for 10 minutes and like 
wait to see how my body would respond and if we were getting any like anesthesia properties happening. And so it was like, literally took like two and a half hours doing this. Oh my God. And so it was funny. Cause then we started chatting. I was like, so what's the best trip you've ever been on? <laughs> so, oh my gosh. Anyone seen any good movies lately? Like we were literally, I'm like naked strapped to a table. <laughs> like, we're doing this <sighs> and we just start chatting. Cause I'm like, this is <laughs> weirdly boring yeah. um, <laughs> and exciting. Right. So it was this amazing team. We're playing music. Like everyone is amazingly cool. But then we get to the point where they realize that they can really only anesthetize the first few layers of skin on my belly, and that's it. Okay, so uh, hold on a second. Anything I just, I just need to yeah. paint uh, like a clear <laughs> picture of the scenario here. <laughs> okay. When they're giving you little bits of anesthesia at a time, is that just mm-hmm. like uh, straight on your belly, or is that like they trying to do it they're, first? So they're putting it into like it's not a true epidural, like a semi epidural. They're trying to get it like placed as close to internally into close to my spine, but they also know they can't go into my Got spine because that would totally destabilize me. Okay. And there, it's basically this total guessing game. Got it. And that's educated just, guessing game. Okay. And they're trying to figure out what's enough to hopefully get some numbing. Okay. Um, but not destabilize me. Okay, so and it's so just we're not tiny bits and waiting. waiting. Okay, oh my gosh! <laughs> so it's like kind of a toned down epidural attempt, and then and yes. then it's just not working. And so then, how, how do they break it to you that they're just gonna do it like a couple layers of? They're like, I'm sorry, we're gonna. This is the best we can do. So, and we'd had this discussion, and I was the one. And again, it's interesting. Like I had to leave that discussion because everyone's pretty scared, right? To be like, P.S. We might have to like basically cut into you and pull out a baby and you're going to feel everything. But I knew that, like I had known that going in. And so I was able to really just ask them really direct questions that I guess in retrospect, probably really freaked them out. Hmm. But they probably (laughs) never met anyone as like strong as you are. (laughs) (laughs) Or crazy. I don't know. What are the two? I mean, Um, So so we came in and finally they just looked at me and said, that's the most that we're going to be able to do. So we're going to start getting the baby out now. This is the end of part one. I know. Are you mad at me? I'm sorry. The The conversation was so long and I had to cut it in the middle. And uh, I know we're ending on a cliffhanger, but trust me, you want to come back next week to hear the conclusion of Dr. Jody Thomas's birth story and the rest of our conversation about pain management. If she could get through what she went through you can too. I promise you it's a very empowering conclusion and you do not want to miss it next week. So make sure you go subscribe so you automatically get that download when it's posted a week from today. Check out the show notes by swiping up on the episode as you're listening to it and learn more about Dr. Jody Thomas and the Meg Foundation. She's given me tons of great links to give to you. So check them out and swipe on up. Thanks for joining me today. As always, it's a pleasure to be with you. I know you have a ton of options for podcasts, so I really appreciate you supporting and enjoying this one. Leave me a review. Tell your friends about the show. You know, spread the word. Visit birthshow.com for resources and follow at birthshow on Instagram to join our community. 
but most importantly, subscribe so you don't miss a single future episode, including part two of my conversation with Dr. Thomas next week. I look forward to being together again next time. I'm Christy Williams, and you've been listening to Birth. This is a Sync Studios production.